Thank you, Drew. All right, guys, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Yesterday afternoon, I was tuning into the radio and I found Wretched Radio with Todd Friels. How many like Wretched Radio? So, as I was tuning in, he was telling a story about how in the Philippines, certain legislators were trying to pass two major things in the country. One of those things was they wanted to pass marriage to be between anybody. The other one they were trying to pass was to legalize divorce. And that kind of had me thinking. I was like, whoa, there's actually countries in the world that don't allow divorce. And there are actually two. Well, if you consider the Vatican a country, which is not, the Vatican and the Philippines are the only two sovereign territories that do not allow divorce. That was pretty interesting. Here in America, 50% of marriages end up in divorce. The majority of these divorces are not caused by adultery, adultery or domestic violence. It's actually 77% of the reasons for divorce is lack of commitment. People just don't want to fight for relationships. They give up. Okay? Now, this got me thinking for a second. People can divorce themselves, right? Husbands and wives can divorce themselves. How strong is that bond? It could be strong. It could be one of the strongest. But then it got me thinking, there's a stronger bond that sometimes exists, and that's that bond between parents and children. And I thought, what would it take for parents to, quote-unquote, divorce their kids, right? What such egregious thing can kids do that could actually, like, take away the love of their parents? And I, th I started thinking, it was like, it has to be something really, really bad. And I don't even think if that would happen, that you would probably still visit your kids in jail because of the love that you have for them. Even in their worst of their worst, there's not like, oh, I'm never going to talk to my kid ever again. It's kind of like what happens in divorce. It's kind of similar to what we're going to talk about today. If the sinning world has affection for their children and has love for their children and mercy for their children and forgiveness for their children, how much more our loving Father and that love and bond that He has with us. And that brings us to Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is strayed? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the other ninety-nine which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones We've been studying chapter 18 of the Gospel of Matthew for the past two lessons. We know that it all began with a question. 
the disciples came to Jesus and said, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And we know the answer to the question is those that are like children. Those that are like children. Why? Because those who are humble like children are humble, right? Those that are not looking for social status, that are not looking for and I, and a place to, to be recognized, but those that will serve unconditionally one another. Last lesson, we talked about how God doesn't really like when we serve as stumbling blocks to believers. He doesn't like when His children are caused to sin, or especially from believers. Right? We talked about that it was an admonition, the warning. Today, we're going to discuss the fourth point. And we're going to look at the reasons why we should not despise God's children as believers. Four reasons why we shouldn't. Okay. That was the outline. So, the theme, for those that are taking notes, and that I want you to have in your mind as we study the lesson tonight is, even when believers go astray, God is willing to restore them with joy. Even when believers go astray, God is willing to restore them with joy. Amen? Let, not, let us not overlook this statement. And let us not overlook tonight's lesson. Because all of us fall into that pit that is lost. Okay? So, let's look at the first point we'll be discussing today. And it's basically Jesus' reminder in verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. He is reiterating what he already said back in verse 6. What does he say in verse 6? says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Right? The Greek for see that, see that you do not despise, means to be vigilant, to be on the lookout. The Greek word for despise means to look down on with contempt. So, in other words, they would read, be diligent and on the lookout that you do not look down on contempt with other fellow Christians. Be on the lookout that you do not do this. Do not look down at fellow believers in Christ. We understand that little ones means believers in Christ. We went over that two lessons ago. Those who have humbled themselves like children. Those who do not look for social power or recognition, but those that want to serve others and follow the great example of our Lord Jesus Christ. To serve others. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. God calls us to be vigilant, vigilant and not to be a stumbling block to other believers. If we do, we are despising His children. And if we are despising His children, that means we're also despising because we know that in verse 4 it says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
What are ways that we discussed last week when we despise or cause others to stumble? Does anybody remember two weeks ago? What are ways that we cause other fellow believers to stumble, to sin? Anybody want to give it a shot? Sex. Okay. Forcing them to sin against their parents' rules or their conscience. That's a good one. What else? What was another way that we caused other believers to stumble that we talked about? Yes. Okay. Which is what? What actions? Okay. You can be a bad influence that people look up to you. Maybe your younger brother or sister looks up to you and then you decide to act a certain way and cause them to sin. Okay. Fox. Okay. Yeah. Using your Christian liberty. Cause others to sin. So come on, guys, get to the to the to the to the uh, <laughs> to the core, right? We were like, when you know there's weaknesses within your siblings, and you poke the bear. Remember that one? Oh, I don't want to remember that one. Well, that's the one that we do all the time. Okay, causing others to stumble. If you know that your brother or sister battles with anger, why poke the bear? Why? you like it because you, you enjoy it and that's pretty evil right but thank God we have a savior that who saves us from our sins this is MacArthur's list when we use our liberty to cause others to sin when we show favoritism between each other as believers when you separate those that are good looking and those that aren't those that have money and those that don't those that are smart and those that aren't those that are athletic and those that aren't and you kind of like reject people within our group based on these things. When we help, when we withhold help to those believers that need it, if we know that our fellow believers are going through financial burdens and situations and we know that when we do nothing about it, that's sinning against our brothers. When we make fun of others' appearances within our group, yes, that happens and that is sinning against and that's despising one of his children, so we're sinning directly against God when this happens, when we think we are better than fellow believers who have fallen into sin. Ooh, man, thank God I'm not like that guy. Right? That's sinful, and that's how we sin against our neighbors. Instead of being praying, instead of praying for them and encouraging them and uplifting them and being there for them so they can be restored, we do what? <laughs> God, I'm not like them. When we resent those that confront us with our own sin, somebody actually does a biblical thing and comes to you and tells you, hey, you should stop doing this if you're sinning before the Lord, and you get mad at them, that's sinning against your brother. When we take advantage of others for personal gain, maybe not now, but in the future when you have a career and you know that there's a friend that's a mechanic, and hey, man, I need to fix my car, and you know, you're a mechanic, man. We're brothers in Christ. Why don't you do it? And then you just do it and you don't even pay him for it. You know. Guys, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We should treat each other more than what the world offers because that's who we are. That's family. That's what we do. Obviously, they might not charge you and they want to do it out of, you know, out of the goodness of their heart, but it doesn't mean that you don't, you know, offer to pay something, right? Don't take advantage of people within our community. So that these are ways that MacArthur states that we can cause, that we can despise others or one of these little ones. So we are reminded about how God feels about when his 
children as as Pastor said. And now we're going to look at the reasons why he doesn't want to come. Right? We're going to look at reasons why, four reasons actually, why we shouldn't cause others to stumble. Four reasons why we should not despise his children. The first reason comes in verse 10b. He watches. The first reason we should not despise other believers is because he watches. Verse 10b. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So for here means because. Because we're not going to despise them because God watches. He's always watching. The Greek word for angel here is a supernatural being created by God to serve Him often as a messenger. We know this is true because in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Are they not ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? The Greek for continually means all the time. So these angels who are messengers are all the time in the face of my Father, the Greek for face of my Father basically means the full being in the full manifestation of the nature and glory of God. We know this because in Luke chapter 1, verse 19, when Zechariah is getting the prophecy for John the Baptist that he's going to be born, says, The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. So, he's saying he always watches. He's always watching. His angels are always watching. We should not despise his children because he is always watching. Now, a lot of you might have this question. So, uh, Mejia, we have guardian angels? How many ask that question in your mind right now, based on what you just read? And the answer is no. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that we have any guardian angels, okay? Nowhere in Scripture does it say that. Now, we do know it, it is a Jewish tradition, all right, for them to believe in this. Just like tradition today within the Catholic Church or within society, oh, yeah, we all have our guardian angel. That's not biblical, but it's something that goes on and the people think and believe. So what Jesus was basically saying that to his point was his disciples and readers would understand that God is always watching. In the heavenly realms, He is always watching. MacArthur states that because angels are in the very presence of God, awaiting any command for them to serve His children, is just a reflection of how important we are to God. So us, for us to be aware and consider other believers more important than ourselves. Amen? So because God is watching, we should not despise other believers. Now, I want to take this principle a little further. Have you ever felt that God is not watching? Let me tell you something. God is always watching. He's always watching for His little ones, right? But He's always watching our behavior. Always watching our behavior. He's watching you 
when you are poking the bear and making your sibling suffer on purpose. He's right there watching while you do this. He's right there when you're watching inappropriate things on your phone, computer, or the TV. He's right there. He's watching. It's not like, oh, I'm hiding this secret sin from the Lord. doesn't happen. He's watching when you feel convicted to read and pray, and you're like, mm, not really right now. I'm, I'm enjoying this video game, or I'm enjoying this movie, or I'm enjoying playing outside with my friends, and I don't really want to do this right now. He's watching when you do this. He's always watching. He's watching when your parents tell you to do something. And when you don't do it with that great attitude, with might, like Pastor Dusty taught us on Sunday, he's looking at you. And he's looking at your heart with the attitude that you're doing and obeying your parents. You can't hide that from God. You can't hide all the words that you're thinking about your parents every time they tell you to do something. Why don't you do it? Why don't you get up? I'm busy. Don't you see? I don't want to do it either. Why don't you? All these... I'm the only one that thought that when they were a kid, right? I'm sorry, I'm just confessing my sin before you guys. He's watching. He listens. He convicts us as parents, right? When we're convicted, stop watching the game. Stop watching your phone and social media. Stop watching the movie and play with your kids. Or when your kids want you to play with you and go, like, Dad, let's go to the park. Or, Dad, let's play a board game. And you're like, mm, I'm good, I'm tired, I, I worked all day. God is watching us. He's watching all the time. Now, how does this motivate us to live our lives? How does it motivate us? Knowing that God is watching. Do we say, well, God forgive me. Will we abuse of God's grace? What does Paul say? May it never be. Let's think about it and let, let that motivate us, knowing that God is looking at us, to change, to have that right attitude when our parents tell us to do something. You know what? Even though I, feel, I don't feel like doing this, you know, I'm going to do it because I've got to honor my parents and I want to honor you at the same time. We need to tend to do so. And, that, and, and, and I'm not saying you're going to be joyful to do it, but at least you have a God conscience. You have, your conscience is like, okay, God is here. God is watching. Let me at least honor God the best I can. In your thoughts, when no one's watching, when no one's listening, oh, he knows. Every single thought. Every single thought of coveting. Every single sexual moral thought. Every single prideful thought. He knows them all. Let's have that in our mind to be God honoring, because he's always watching. So, the first reason why we should not despise his children is because he watches. The second reason why we should not despise his children is because he saves. He saves, verse 11, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Let's not overlook this. This is the gospel in a sentence, right here for you tonight. Now, do a lot of you have brackets in your Bible? Look at your Bible real quick. Does that verse have two brackets at the beginning and at the end of that bracket? 
You know what that means? It means that this verse was not in the original manuscript of the Gospel of Matthew. It means that it was not in the original manuscript of the Gospel of Matthew. This verse is found in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And a commentator writes, The phrase was probably picked up from the Gospel of Luke by a well-meaning copyist, and then added it to Matthew. Right? So basically, somebody who was copying the, the Gospel of Matthew, and they were copying it, probably had read the Gospel of Luke and had it somewhere, and said, wait, I, I think there's something similar here, and he wrote what he saw in Luke in this copy. So some, some of your Bibles have it, some don't, okay? But because it's biblically sound, and it is found in Luke, we're going to go and discuss it right now, okay? For here, for means because, all right? We, because the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20 says, Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? For you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We should not despise his children because he saved them. And that saving came at a price. That saving came at a price. We should not despise his little children because they are valuable to God because he saved them with his own precious blood. The Greek to save here means to deliver from sin and consequential judgment. To deliver from sin and consequential judgment. And the Greek for was lost, to become damaged beyond the point of recovery. So basically it reads like this. For Jesus has come to deliver from judgment those who were damaged beyond the point of recovery. That is the gospel, guys. That is you, that is me. <coughs> that is the world. None of us has, have any merit to be saved on our own. We were damaged, lost beyond repair. We were headed straight towards hell. Our will was against God. Our will was to serve our own kingdom. Was not to bow down to anyone to serve our own God, which was us. Cannot do it on our own. Cannot save ourselves on our own. No one is perfect. And that requires a Savior. And that requires the good news, which is what? That Jesus Christ, who was 100% God, became 100% man and God at the same time, lived the perfect life you and me could never live, died on the cross, rose from the dead, and is alive today, sitting the right hand of God. How can we be saved? How can we be saved? The Bible is clear that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that He rose from the dead, and you put your faith and your trust only in Him for your salvation, you will be saved. If you repent from your sins and believe in Jesus, 
you will be saved. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. We were lost eternally, but He saved us. He served a powerful Savior. So we've discussed we should not despise His little children because He watches. We've discussed we should not despise His little children because He saved them. Now we're going to look at because He cares. Verse 12. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and search for the one that is strayed? The commentator writes, the what do you think is a common way for a Jewish teacher who's going to introduce a new subject to tell his pupils. What do you think? I'm going to teach you something here. Let's think about it. What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep, He's basically saying, if in our world, logically speaking, a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave that one, the 99 and go for one? Basically saying, if this happens within the world that we live in, imagine what God does. Imagine what God does. The Greek word for gone astray is to move aimlessly or without any destination. <laughs> to move aimlessly or without any destination. I don't know if you relate to that. Gone astray. One of them gone astray. Does he not leave? <clears throat> to leave here is, the Greek word is intentional. Not by accident. He intentionally calculates, I'm leaving these 99 sheep and I'm going for one that is missing. On the mountain. Leave them on the mountain. Not just, well, let me leave these 99 in a safe, secure location, and let me go look for that one that's lost. In Palestine, the mountains are, a lot of things happen on the mountains. There's a lot of cliffs, there's a lot of lions and tigers and bears. Don't say it. So all these things are occurring, and he's purposely, intentionally leaving them for that one. The Greek for search is to try to get or reach something one desires. So what is Jesus saying here? He is saying that for him, it is more important that none of those who he has called his own should go astray. Not even one. Not even one. Even if they do stray away, the Father will bring them back to him. And this, my friends, it's a blessing. It's called the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Once you are saved, you are always going to be saved. You cannot lose your salvation. It is impossible because it doesn't depend on you. Everyone turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 22. And we're going to read to verse 30. All right, look up when you have it. Okay. At the time of the feast of the dedication, to, at, the t- at that time, 
The Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple of the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe me. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. And you do not believe me because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. No one will able be able to snatch you from the Father's hand. No one. Once you are His, you are His, and He will never let you go astray. You can go astray. You can go astray for periods of time. But if you are His, you will always come back to the fold. You will always come back because you are His. You hear His voice and you will eventually respond. Now, a commentator wrote, and I liked it, this idea of the one of Jesus, of the shepherd going for that one sheep, it was basically to take, this, there was this notion in Israel at that time where they thought that those believers or those Jews that were sinners were looked upon, le- were looked upon as lesser, second-class citizens compared to the other church-going Jews. So Jesus was trying to say, this is not what we're, this is not valuable to me. What is valuable to me is the ones, those believers that know that they need me. Not the righteous that think that they don't. He's putting value to all the sheep in his fold. But specifically those that go astray. Because they're valuable too. And guess what? If they're valuable to God, they should be valuable to who? To who? To us. Because we're not supposed to despise them. So we we should not despise those little children because we lost it. We should not despise those little children because we saved them. We should not despise those little children because we cared for them. And finally, we should not despise those little children because he rejoices when they come back. Verse 13. If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. The point here is not about the other sheep that stayed, but about the one that went astray. When that one is found and returns, there is much joy. A commentator wrote, his joy with the 99 faithful ones was not meant to be minimized. It was assumed that he was already greatly pleased with them, but he loved to display his saving grace towards those who were most undeserving. That is what God does. He loves to demonstrate his grace to the most undeserving. Why? 
Because those that see themselves as undeserving understand and see God for who He is instead of the righteous that thinks, well, I'm, I'm not as bad. I'm not as bad. No, we, we are all bad before God. We are all we are all sinners before God. This is what we do. Now, as believers, there might be moments in your life where you can go astray. It could happen. It could happen to any one of us here, including myself, to go astray. What are reasons that believers might go astray? The number one that we see a lot, when they move out of the house of their parents, when they move out of your parents' house, guess what? Now it's your responsibility to start going to church. And your responsibility to read your word on your own. And your responsibility to seek God. And your responsibility to serve at 7 a.m., not because your parents are making you go, because that comes from your heart. And some have this liberty, and some have this autonomy, and they've had this moment of exploration, and they go astray. Lack of reading and meditating on Scripture can lead you astray. Lack of praying can lead you astray. Lack of congregating can lead you astray. Lack of serving in the local body can lead you astray. Lack of spiritual accountability can lead you astray. Unrepenting sin can blind you and lead you astray. It's not a coincidence that these verses are right right before the church discipline verses that we're going to discuss next week. It's not a coincidence. We need each other. First and foremost, to be able to live this Christian life, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Can't do it on our own. Through the power of God that we can live this life. He's giving us mediums to help each other out. To serve in the local body with the spiritual gifts that God has given you to equip His church. And in God's grace, guess what happens when you are serving the Lord with your gift that He's given you. You're serving with other believers. And you are fellowshipping with other believers. And you're talking to other believers. And if you don't show up to church, your other believers are going to be like, hey, brother, I haven't seen you in a while. Where you been? You feel connected. You are accountable. Keeps you walking in the ways of the Lord. Unrepenting sin blind you. And when confronted, I like it so much, I don't really want to change. And you're just blinded to it. That's why that's why we're going to talk about church discipline next, next, next lesson. Because if you call yourself to be a believer in Christ, we will help hold you accountable to that. Hey brother, you call yourself a Christian. This is not how a Christian lives. You got to repent from this sin. And, and, and we're here to help. But you can't just keep on living this way. Now, you might be asking, okay, what's the time frame here? How do I know I'm, I've gone astray 
or I'm not, maybe I'm not a believer at all. How do I know this? Or how do I know this from my family members that we grew up in the same church, we had the same Sunday school teachers, the same youth leaders, the same pastor, the same everything, and I'm here and my sibling is not. Are they astray? Or maybe they weren't saved in the first place. Well, guess what? The good news is the Bible does not call us to judge other people's salvation. So who cares? Don't worry about others and the time and how long they've not been going to church or not reading the Word. You are called to worry about your own salvation. Check check yourself to see if you are in the faith. And that's what we're going to discuss and we'll worry about. Are you living a life that is honoring God? Are you praying? Are you reading the Word? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you serving the Lord with your gifts? Do you want to do this? Is this your desire? This is what a true believer looks like. This is what your life should be characterized by. But if there's a moment in time where this is not, no one in here is to judge your salvation. We are to come alongside you and say, hey, call yourself a believer. This is what what the Bible tells us to do. We need to repent from this and we need to pray about this. And then the two come, and if it's not to the church, and if it's given, then you can say, well, they're out of the church, and we'll get into that next lesson. But that is what we are called to do. I check my own salvation. I don't check the salvation of others. Now, in God's grace, He's given us 2 Samuel chapter 11. Everyone turn your Bibles there. 2 Samuel chapter 11. You got seven minutes. Guys, and I need you to do me a favor. Can you do me a favor real quick? In God's grace, He's given us an example of one of the greatest kings in Israel's history, in King David, and he's giving us an example of him sinning atrociously. Horrible. But they're forgiven. I need you to do me a favor. I need you to read the following story like if you've never read it before. Can you do that for me? I need you to read what we're going to read right now without anything in your mind knowing like this is the first time you're going to come to this story. Amen? 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Then it happened in the spring. Are we all there? Because I want everyone following along. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Look up when you got it. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. When the kings were out, and David needed to be out, he stayed. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. Why is he doing this? He's getting, he's married. David, you're married. You don't have to be inquiring about anybody. But he did. 
And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. Like having babies lay, okay? Not, let's watch a movie on Netflix, all right? When she had purified herself from her uncleanliness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, and said, I am pregnant. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of war. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all his servants, with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also and tomorrow. I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed and with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning... David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was Joab kept watch on the city and he put Uriah at the place where, we knew, where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab. And some of the people among David's servants fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Here David tried to, he committed adultery, tries to hide his adultery by having Uriah come and try to sleep with his wife so that it would be blamed on him and not on David. Uriah's like, I'm not going to do that. David gets him drunk to try to send him to his home, and he still doesn't do it. And then David sends him to the fiercest part of the battle. And Uriah dies because of David. Uriah is a person, right? He's, he's a son to, to his parents, a brother, sister, to his siblings. A valiant soldier, not a Joe Smoke. But look what David did in his sin, in his evil heart. He devised this plan. And this is David, King David, according to God's own heart. How many of you think that's messed up? I 
potential and guess what the Lord disciplines those he loves right Second Samuel chapter 12 verse 7 Nathan said to David you are the man thus says the Lord God of Israel it is I who anointed you king over Israel and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had not been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and under the sun. At that point, that's God's judgment. And at that point, David saw his sin before God. And what does he do? Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. <coughs> and Nathan said to David, The Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die, because he repented. However, because of this deed, by this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan answered God. What does this repentance look like? You see, what is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever? The difference is, let's go to Psalm chapter 32. See, this is what a believer feels when he sins before a holy God. Verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in those spirits there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as the fever heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 51. Verse 1 to 4. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you, before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. See, that's the difference. When you know you're a believer, that's God is saying. It was a while for David. He, he, you know, the Bible says it was a long time that, 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 was, that, that David was confused. And David was, he was 
holding all this sin, all this guilt in his mind. It was crushing him. That's when you know you're a believer because no matter what, the Holy Spirit indwells in you. And if he does, that conviction is always there and it won't let you sleep. You can hide it, you can try to suppress it, but eventually, because you are his, he will bring you back to himself. Last point, the summary of verse 14. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. How amazing is our God that he offers, offers his mercy each day to us. How amazing is Jesus that he cares for us and brings us back to his fold. How amazing is his love that he not only saves us, but he maintains our salvation. Nothing that we can do for it. It's all him, not us. How can we apply this? Number one, live your life as if God is always watching. Live your life as if God is always watching. Number two, pray for those that might be astray and pray that you might never fall astray either. Have mercy on those brothers and sisters that need that help and need that prayer. And lastly, praise God for not only saving us, but sustaining us all the time. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your love, for your mercy, that you save sinners like us. That no matter the sin that we commit before you, no matter how egregious it is, Lord, you forgive us. If we are yours, you call us to your fold. You will bring us back. We pray for those that are astray right now, our family members, our friends that we know that might be astray. Father, we pray that you can grant them repentance so they can come back to your fold. Father, we pray for ourselves that you can deliver us from ever going astray, from following your commandments, which are not a burden, Lord. Help us never despise fellow believers. Help us never despise them because you're always watching, because you save them, because you care for them, and because you rejoice when they come back to your fold. Thank you, O God, for our salvation in Jesus Christ. And thank you for not only saving us, but sustaining us through our lives. It is in your name we pray. Amen.